0: That the only thing we have to fear is... fear itself. No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. There's nothing to fear except God. Whatever that means to you.
1: You're listening to a podcast exploring faith and fear, what scares us and what saves us. This is The Fear of God. Hello, and welcome to The Fear of God, episode 11. And, uh, we are here, this is a very special episode, but not necessarily because of what we're talking about, although what we're talking about is something very fun and special, but listeners may know that, uh, for most of our recording, Nathan and I are on opposite ends of the country, but today, today, that's not the case. Not
0: so much sitting here right next to you. It's a, it's a, bold brave new world we're experiencing right now and it doesn't matter at all to people listening but it's fun to us that exactly uh we are not three hours difference in recording times um and thus fatigue levels as well although (laughs) although fatigue is a definite uh player in today's episode uh yes arrived last night at roughly midnight eastern time at which time we then what did we do? Read last night, midnight <laughs> Boy, Eastern time. I
1: subjected you to a viewing of today's uh, today's topic, which today we are actually going to be talking about a, a film I consider to be a masterpiece. Uh, a Film came out about two years ago uh, from Australia called The Babadook. And uh, yeah, I made you watch that last night while you, you were didn't. sleep Almost, <laughs> um, I
0: was. I was with it. I mean. Thirty seconds there at the end, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Baba Duke finally got to me and knocked me out um, with his tranquilizer
1: pill. Oh boy! Um, but before we get into that, um, just a couple of things. I want to say some specific thank yous. This is actually the first episode that we're recording. That we basically we record a lot of episodes in advance, um, just for some practicality, you know, reasons, but. Um, this is the first episode that we're recording since the show has begun to air. And I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners who've given us some really positive feedback. Uh, we really appreciate very much. you taking the time to listen and engage with us. And you've all had some very encouraging and exciting things to say. So I just want to say thank Except you. Except that much. one guy, you know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's not listening anymore. Come on. He's not.
0: He ever did.
1: But, um, but yeah, so we just want to say thank you very, very much, uh, for all of the positive feedback. I want to say a specific thank you to, um, Aaron White and Patrick Hicks over at Feelin' Film. They've been very supportive of the show. Uh, I actually got the opportunity to be a guest on their show, um, to discuss Blair Witch. Um, but I want to say a very special thank you to those guys. Those guys are doing some good work and we really appreciate the, the love and promotion that they've given to fear of God. I'm going to well. interrupt
0: you there. You know, we didn't even uh, discuss this beforehand, but I, uh, you know, hello, Aaron and Patrick. Patrick, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Aaron has interacted a good bit with us on Facebook, and um, I've never met him IRL, to use Mr. Robot terms. Um, <laughs> but uh, even just glancing at what they're doing uh, with their podcast, I just really appreciate the sensibility they're approaching it with. I've always I've always thought, yes, I do think there's place for technical conversation and, you know, objectivity in terms of this is better than that because X, Y, and Z, but I also think there's a strong compulsion on my part, or I find, you know, how just how do you how do you respond to this on a just sort of emotional, feeling based level? Like you and I sort of take that approach with what we're doing in terms of what do you like? What what regardless of things that might technically not be up to snuff um or whatever you know we just approach it from a standpoint i feel like roger ebert really uh did a lot of that like how did this film make me feel and i really appreciate that that's uh specifically what they base their content on
1: yeah props to you guys yeah i completely agree they're doing really good work um i want to say a couple of other thank yous that we just haven't had an opportunity to say on the show yet we We to american
0: airlines for getting me here safely oh thank you to american
1: airlines yes (laughs) shout out to them thanks for not not crashing the plane like uh like one of our favorite TV shows. <laughs> Sorry, we're a wow. little punchy right now. <laughs> um, but um, but actually, that's part of, the, part of the reason why you're here is because we're going tonight to a celebration of one of our uh, uh, mutual favorite TV shows, Lost. Yes,
0: Michael Giacchino is doing a concert tonight hosted by, we wish our good friend, Damon Lindelof. Um, we but, do wish our good friend. Um, <laughs> but yes, we are attending that tonight. Uh, In LA. Feels very, uh, cosmopolitan of us. If not cosmopolitan nerdy that's a new word oh cosmopolitan
1: nerdy hashtag um but uh but but do sincerely want to say thank you to a few people want to say thank you of course to tyler smith over more than one lesson for hosting us without him we wouldn't have a show and i just want to say thank you to him for uh all the support he's given us and um and just allowing us to do this thing um also want to say a special thank you to a couple of friends um want to say a shout out to wes o'hare who um recorded, who made our artwork, made the very impressive, I think, uh, artwork for our show. Um, just think he does some really great graphic work and, um, really appreciate him doing that for us. And I also want to say a special thank you to my buddy Chris Carey, who had, uh, some really good feedback on some of the early episodes and just with technical ideas and content ideas. I really appreciated that. And my final shout out is I want to, uh, say hey to my buddy, Lee uh, in Florida right now, who uh, he and I recorded our opening theme music probably over a decade ago, just when we were goofing around back when we were roommates. And uh just want to say thank you to him for letting me use that. And just just a few acknowledgments that we hadn't yet taken the time to do on the show. And I wanted to remedy that. So uh, the last thing we'll say by way of announcements before we just sort of dive into, you know, catching up a little bit and the few things we're going to talk about today is um, if you look on Facebook as of this recording, so we're referencing things that are happening in late September, but you'll be hearing this in November, and if you look on the website, there's a survey there that we'd really like you to take a, a minute or two to fill out. It's just a couple of feedback questions about the show itself, but most importantly, there's an opportunity for you listeners to vote on one of our next episodes. We want to start giving you guys the opportunity to let us hear what you want us to talk about. So,
0: Since this is airing in November, it's kind of an appropriate month to have a... A vote, if you will. Oh,
1: there it is. You know? Yes. Make the go and uh, cast your this vote really for the better one. Lose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You will not lose this election, whereas uh, others. Oh, there's, all, there's so much loss. We'll there's see. all the loss. Um, but uh, but yeah, so uh, go visit our Facebook page. You'll see the survey there. Um, and uh, just give us an opportunity to let us know what you'd like us to talk about. There's uh, um, about seven to ten options there that you can look at and say, okay, <clears throat> just vote on one of these, and one of those will be included in our next block of of five to ten episodes. So, uh, yeah, go visit that survey, and thanks again to everybody that we said thank you to. And, uh, yeah, other than that, hi, Nathan. Hey, Reed. How
0: you doing? (laughs) It's so weird. I can, like, high-five you, shake your hand, pick your nose, whatever, Um, which I usually cannot do any of those (laughs) when we're normally recording. Um, Kind of... we. I don't know how frequently we actually do this, but it feels like we do it pretty consistently and would like to follow suit here and just talk about <clears throat> in brief a few things that maybe, uh, since our last recording, you've, you've seen, read, heard. What's the word on the street? Um, I've got a couple things I want to mention. Um, and, and curious where, where you would fall on some of this too or for your own self. Um, did watch all of Stranger Things since last we talked, um, just like the rest of the, world that has usable eyeballs um <laughs> that felt that felt real dismissive to blind people and i didn't mean it to um <laughs> and uh so did watch stranger things um enjoyed the heck out of it um but there's been a whole lot of of, of digital ink spilled over that show so it won't spend too much time on it at the moment though perhaps at some point our show will get to it um two specific things i did watch um in light of our john carpenter series i did I was home by myself one night and queued up old Big Trouble in Little China uh, for the first time ever. (laughs) And you and I were texting back and forth. I got to say, you know, like it's it is something else. It is bonkers, but I dug it in that way that you're like, I don't know what I'm watching, but it's fun.
1: Um, (laughs) It's all in the reflexes is what it is.
0: <laughs> I'm a very reasonable man. What does he say? <laughs> He's saying very unreasonable things. Love That's it. a He's great like, line. Oh man! Well, and and you and I texted back and forth, and you know, at this point, our view, our listeners will be familiar with my thoughts on They Live, and and remarkably, that came after Big Trouble. But to me, Big Trouble was a more refined version of what They Live was aiming for. I don't know. It just I I never doubted that this is full bore kind of satire comedy. Right. Right. Um, And, and you've got Kurt Russell just selling the heck out of every line and every gesture and every facial expression. Um, And it is weird. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird, but (laughs) in a fun way that you can kind of roll with, I am a fan of just, this sounds weird to say, but if I know what I'm getting, I can really dig in on some absurd humor, you know, and there right. are some jokes in there that are just hysterical. Oh I yeah. Mean, stupid things like the scene when they're going through the tunnels and is it Chem control? Is that who's Kim Cattrall, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> one by one? Each person comes through the tunnel and she keeps waiting on him. You know, <laughs> right. and it's just this, it's like a two minute sequence where yeah. any other, "Quote unquote smarter director knows you in and out, in and out. You know light, this, light. this scene just keeps going. People uh, <laughs> in the story—they're not random people, though that would be funny too. Yeah. But people just keep popping up until yeah. well, where's Jack? Yeah. You know,
1: <laughs> so just oh, things man. like that. So, well, yeah. and yeah. I love sp- uh, possible spoilers for non-plot spoilers, but possible spoilers for uh, Big Trouble in Little China." One of the most memorable moments for me is where the people at the end are like, you're not going to kiss her goodbye. <laughs> and he's just like, nope. <laughs> and walks right out the door. Oh, it's so wonderful. I, I really, as I think I said on the episode, we talked about it, that every time I watch that movie, I have forgotten how much fun it is to watch that movie.
0: Well, I love that. I texted you. I said, I said, let me guess. We never learn what the hell demon is. The <laughs> monster. And you're like, no. Nope. I was like, okay, whatever. You, know, <laughs> you just sort of go with it. It's and awesome. there's this creepy where monster thing. Yep. That's, oh, know, my gosh. I can use my brain. I can I can put some pieces of the puzzle together. Um, so I did watch that. Uh, the other one I did want to mention, um, you use this word uh, a good bit, uh, masterpiece. I, I feel like I want to use it here. Um, Kubo and the Two Strings, I've seen twice and man, just utterly adore that movie. Like, mm-hmm. um, not even traditionally like, you know, this avid stop motion fan necessarily. I mean, I, I like it and respect it and think it takes a great deal of skill and work to pull off, but I don't know. So if you, if you have not seen Kubo and you're the mildest bit interested in it, it is well worth your time and, and six, seven, eight, depending on what part of the country you're in, 10 bucks, um, to make that happen. It's, it's really an excellent
1: movie. I need to see that one. I still haven't, I still haven't had the opportunity. My theater viewing has to be very precise these days. Sure. And, um, I would really love to go see Kubo. I've enjoyed everything that has come out of, uh, is it Leica? Yep. Leica. Um, I really love Coraline. Yes, um, yes. And I, I even enjoy though to lesser degrees, uh, Paranorman mm-hmm. and, uh, the box trolls. I enjoyed both of those, but I've heard such high praise for Kubo. I really to me, to check it. To me,
0: to me, um, I'm with you. I, I actually, of those other three, I think Coraline's probably my favorite, but everything you feel like they get right with those just gets amped to about a hundred, you know, it gets turned oh, up 20. to 11 in Kubo. Oh. It just, it's, it's kind of the most, Realized version, it feels like, of what they're going for, generally speaking. So, gotcha, cool. Thoroughly loved it. Um, any any specific points you want to bring up? With um, you've absorbed.
1: Yeah, I want to mention two things uh, rather briefly. So, I would echo what you said about Stranger Things. We we we've had people specifically reach out to us and say, "Hey, are you guys going to do a Stranger Things episode?" Just to specifically address that, we're still trying to figure out um, how or if that would happen. <laughs> and another reason we're not doing it is because. I mean, just to be honest, like so many other people are doing it right now. Right. So it's like there's a lot of really good thoughts about it out there, a lot of good content. Uh, maybe we might tackle something once uh, season two comes out or something. But uh, but I did really enjoy Stranger Things. I thought it was very well done, uh, very exciting show and exciting for the possibilities of where Netflix could go from here. Um, <clears throat> they just really are doing some great things. And speaking of Netflix, I saw on Netflix a show, uh, a movie uh, that's a very slow burn horror film. That had a pretty strong effect on me. It's a movie called The Invitation. I believe like we talked about with Hush, I believe Netflix owns the distribution rights for this. Um, It is the premise is simply um, this couple is invited to a group of friends that have not gotten together in about two years. This is an appropriate title. The invitation, yes. Um, and when they arrive, uh, I don't want to say anything about the nature of these relationships, but basically there's some tension that is now, this is an opportunity to sort of resolve some of that tension, reconnect after a couple of years. And you learn through the course of the movie what that tension is based in and where some of the, um, some of the sort of drama and fraught nature of some of these interactions is coming from. But I will just say that it is very, deliberately paced but it has a pretty assaultive kind of ending um, so and that's as much as I'll say about it just say like if you're watching it if you feel like wow this is really slow stick with it I think the last 15-20 minutes will make it worth your time that's my feeling on it and I really had a, a strong feeling about it I thought it was very impactful uh, the other thing that I saw uh, that you can pop over to our friends at Feel and Film and um, check out our minisode about it is I saw Blair Witch Blair Witch is a very heavily derided film, and I think there's a lot of validity to some of the criticisms that have been hurled at that movie, but I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was um, a fun revisitation of that world. Um, again, there are criticisms out there about it that I would agree with, they just didn't bother me to the degree that they seem to have bothered some other people. It's like, well, okay, you've, you've made a good point, it didn't hurt my enjoyment of the film. I really thought it was good. Um, and I think it's a film that we don't talk about this very much, but I think it's a film that if you've had the opportunity to see it in the theater or if you have the opportunity to see it with a really good sound system, I think that will probably impact how you feel about it. Um, because it's, uh, it's definitely dependent upon sound and things that are happening off screen, uh, as with a lot of horror films. But I really, I really liked it a lot. I think it's funny you bring that me. up
0: because I just read an article the other day. Um, I, I, I haven't seen any of the, uh, Blair movies. <laughs> I really wish those movies were centered on a monster named Blair. That would oh really make God. it all worth it. Oh <laughs> <my goodness. laughs> but I did read an article where, uh, the director of the second one, something. Book of what? Shadows. Yes, yes. Yeah. Like, and, and I'm sure it was released. This, this interview bit was released and to, to coincide with the new film. Basically has said, uh, you know what got released wasn't even my movie mm-hmm. apparently I, I, man i'm probably gonna be totally off base on this i think he was a documentary director and got hired and had a specific vision he wanted to oh, execute wow. and you know as as the story can go network had its way and and mm-hmm. just completely butchered what he'd given and so now he gets credit for it being lousy terrible while, right you know it was just just a fascinating and, and unfortunately all too frequent story, uh, that sure. you hear with these types of movies. So there, so what you're telling me is there's no ghost named Blair that haunts
1: children no. in the movies. No, that's unfortunate. There's no, there's it no. feels like a
0: missed opportunity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's terrible. Uh, uh, we're going to, we're going to brush, uh, brush briskly past, uh, the horrible facts of life jokes. And, um, and, um, so we we want to spend some time talking today about a film that I think is, again, uh, just a real masterpiece. Uh, Nathan had the opportunity. he he, I was grateful that he waited to let me watch it with him for the first time. Uh, but it's a film that I've talked about before on uh, More Than One Lesson and I've, I've referenced a couple of times in some other podcasts I've been on. But it is uh, just a real masterful work. And this is by a first-time director. Um Jennifer Kent, I believe, is her name. I'm going to look that up because I don't want to get the bell rung on me. Yeah, Jennifer Kent. But uh, <laughs> The Babadook is interesting. I will say this. If you have not seen The Babadook yet, um, it gets talked about a lot and heavily praised, so chances are you've seen it. If you have not seen it, I would highly recommend... We are going to be spoiling everything. I highly recommend you watch it before you hear some of what we're going to say. I don't think that necessarily... We're going to ruin the film for you if you choose to press on, but I think it's worth experiencing uh, on its own without any sort of understanding of what's happening beforehand. So the first thing I want to just talk about is, um, you know, brushing past the title, as odd and quirky as it is, it also distinguishes it from other films because you immediately know, oh, this is something different. This is something that uh, is possibly unique and hasn't been done a whole lot. I just want to start by asking Nathan what your... Initial feelings were about the movie. Like sure, sure. I know, I know you were a little drowsy last night, but the, <laughs> but there were a couple of times I could tell well, that we you needed were getting- to
0: sleep. So we, I mean, we we couldn't sleep because we didn't want to get attacked by the Babadook. So we had to stay awake watching <laughs> late night black and white films. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, to you know, I'll, I'll I'll take the baton here and talk about the title for myself. Like, yes, perhaps if you don't have any sort of familiarity with kind of the horror genre or just genre material in general it might be sort of uh you know a curious title but it calls to mind for me um specifically like the Jabberwock Jabberwock oh right 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 and um goodness gracious it's been years since I've indulged any of that material but but I, I you know I don't think if it's very possible Jennifer Kent had zero sort of um, correlations she wanted to draw there, but there are some interesting parallels in terms of just that childhood that like, you know, something, something about our internal life right. is manifesting itself in an external way. Um, so yeah, I find it a very fascinating sort of choice of of title. Um, in terms of the movie itself, I referenced with our conjuring series, uh, an appreciation and affection for kind of in-camera effects and, was reading today that all of it was in camera, yeah. you know, all of it was, none of it was, um, CG post sort of stuff. And it's funny what I was reading referenced how some critics criticized what, what the piece I was reading called the low-fi quality when Jennifer's response was that was the intention, you know, it was meant yeah. to be, um, kind of of that nature. Yeah. I mean, I think excellent creature design, character design, you know, and, and what's fascinating about that is you, While it is a very interesting and, and, and compelling character design, you don't see a lot of the creature in the movie, you know? And so a lot of it is this sort of secondhand visuals. Mm -hmm. One, it's the, 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 um, like the poster, you know, that's got the image on it. Uh, Promotional poster is what I mean. Sure. But also in the film itself, it's the book, you know, that where you actually see this thing. Whereas most of the visual of it is, um, you get those sort of signature looks like the top hat, the, the raised arms, the, the sharp fingers. But even that is just in sort of shadowed non-visual, you right. know, and so it's very effective visually. Um, so really enjoyed that. I think the performances by both the mother and the son are very strong. Yeah, I mean, I just think there's a lot to like about it, especially if you're watching it at 3 a.m. Eastern time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty affecting movie. Um, the first 45 minutes, it's interesting. I've seen the film now. Last night's viewing was my fifth time seeing it. Um, I, you know, it's, it's obvious by my statement that I, if I really connect strongly with a film, I will rewatch it many times because I want to appreciate as much as I can about what I liked about it. Um, and, it's interesting watching those first 45 minutes before things really get bombastic because you could be lulled into thinking that you're essentially just watching uh, a family drama um, that's going to have some vague supernatural elements. And the once the monster finally rears its head in a real literal way, it, it, it's just not what you would expect. One of the things that I love the most about the film is that, yes, there is in the story an external thing that they have to deal with and we're calling it the babadook but at the same time and again this is where we start getting into spoilers uh the film is really about what's happening specifically within the mom and uh and that in the narrative of the of the film this babadook you know uh, basically possesses her but in a thematic and i think even in a narrative way it's that she has always sort of been the babadook not necessarily that she's already that she's always been it but it's always been in her it's always been right. something that is uh a f- a function of her grief it's her right. it's her grief and sorrow made manifest in this monstrous sort of entity uh you and I talked a little bit off mic about how in those in the first half of the film as sensitively as i can put it the the, the boy is rather obnoxious. annoying yeah he's obnoxious he's I'm
0: obnoxious.
1: <laughs> he's very Uh, He's tough to deal with, and at times, you get sort of frustrated by this child's behavior and the child's sort of incessant, his his obsession with monsters and making traps and causing all of these problems, and you really sympathize with the mom, and you really kind of sort of feel what she's feeling about the frustration of, I'm doing this alone, because for those of you who may not have seen it, the premise is that her husband on their way to for to the hospital for her to give birth to their son. Um, they were in a car accident. She and her son survived, but her husband did not. So the birthday of her child is also the death day of her husband. And so this is something that she's always had a conflict about. She doesn't celebrate the child's birthday on his actual day, and she is basically struggling with this feeling of simultaneously loving her son, but all of this grief makes her, in sometimes a very literal way, kind of hate her son as Mm -hmm. well. And so she's having to navigate through all of that, and the first half of the film, you kind of feel the frustrations that she's having with the child, but it it takes a turn there in the middle where you really start to see, wow, she's crossing over into something uglier and crossing over into something a bit more uh, fatal. Well, and he becomes more sympathetic, too. Absolutely. I mean, I I totally agree with you, those
0: first 30... plus minutes you it's it's as a parent yeah it's hard to watch like man this child is pushing every possible button and then some uh to to direct before we get too heavy into themes i did want to i mean you've seen it five times now so i don't know how much of it actually um scares you per se (laughs) but want to talk about a few elements um as we do um of just some scary moments scary scenes things that were effectively rendered on screen and I think to me, and, and perhaps you'll echo this, Babadook is a, a good example of a movie that does a great job at atmosphere and mood. And, and really, that's a lot more the, 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 you know, if there's something scary, the, the tension, you know, I mean, you're, you were present with me last night. I mean, there's the, the scenes getting more shadowy mm-hmm. and. You, you just, as a viewer, are anticipating something. You don't know what to anticipate, though. Right, you know? so right. So it's very effective from a mood standpoint, but some specific, you know, just kind of scary moments. I think the car scene when it attacks the car Ooh, yeah. is very effective. Absolutely. And, I mean, goodness gracious, the... the uh, I mentioned the creature design just a second ago, but just the visual of the creature and how yeah. it's never fully... It probably would have been less scary if it had been fully revealed. Sure, you know, not sure. Not in shadow, but there's that image of Mrs. Roach, the neighbor's house and of the mom looking through the window and you see the kind of outline behind her of him. (laughs) That's great. That's a great moment. Um, were there any specific sort of scary moments that, that I know five, five viewings in, it might not be, (laughs) might be hard to conjure them.
1: Well, it's still, it's still intensely effective. Even five viewings in and a couple of other, uh, minor instances of just looking up on YouTube and stuff like that. But when he first comes into their bedroom, like he calls her on the phone and does that I'm not even going to try to mimic the voice right ugh. now yeah oh but when he calls her on the phone and then later when she's laying in the bed with her son and then he enters the room right. and then she's under the blanket you're not seeing anything that always gets me they crank the volume up and his his just guttural growl as he's you know saying his name uh you know it, it, that still gives me chills even sure. all these viewings in that's a very effective <clears throat> moment and i think anything related to those confrontational moments where a lot of times the film puts you from the perspective of this creature seeing them and any time that it does that and there's a sort of a scream fest between the two of them mm-hmm. that still just gives me chills sure. watching it that's those are those scenes are very creepy uh, but i think for me perhaps the scariest moment, um, and this could be a transition to theme, but it doesn't have to be, but perhaps the scariest moment for me is when she very literally embodies the Babadook, and he runs up to the bedroom at one point, and it's after uh, they've had some tension and some fears, and you already know as the viewer that this Babadook thing has taken her over, mm-hmm. but after he uh, is defending himself and he stabs her in the leg, um, then he runs upstairs when she comes up, I don't know if you caught this, but in the book, when they're reading the book, you know, it says there's three knocks, three heavy knocks, and then let me in. Well, that's what she does when she goes up to the bedroom is she, she runs up to the bedroom and she says, you know, let me in. And she starts just saying, let me in, let me in. And then she, that you know, she's kicking
0: the door. Down yeah. The door. And yeah.
1: then when she's busting the door with her, with her legs, it makes that loud, you know, mm-hmm. almost like a tunnel echo. Mm-hmm knock on the door and then when she bursts in and she has her hands splayed she is floating she appears to be floating rather than stepping Um, so she is the embodiment of the babadook at that point and maybe the the mamadook whoa (laughs) whoa and unfortunately, I can't edit this out because we're in the same room. Well, with you. <laughs> exactly. No, that is a good one. I'll give it to you. So, Stupid, um, but good. So when she embodies that and then begins to speak to him and the things she says to him, uh, the the courage of this film to be that honest about its subject matter Sure. Still impresses me because she looks at him and she says, you don't know how many times I wished it was you that had died instead of him. Right. And I'm just like, for a, for a mother, even, even character wise, for a mother to say that to her child and then just to be so nasty to him while he's trying to express affection to her. Um, it's very impactful, but in ways that are not traditionally scary, that is just deeply unsettling. Sure. It's deeply unsettling to, to know, because I tell you this, one thing that be- when becoming a father, the thing that I was unprepared for, um, I'm just going to be as sensitively honest as I can, the thing that I was unprepared for was my own capacity to be angry with this person who I sure. so deeply love. Sure. I was unprepared for how angry it was possible for me to get with my child. Now, naturally... I didn't manifest anything close to whatever the Babadook would, but you feel it right. in the depths of your gut.
0: Yeah. And you read all these stories of parents who do act out oh, of those Lord. feelings. And, and I remember thinking sort of like what you're describing, like I, by the Lord's grace and will and my own sense of self-restraint, don't think I'll go there or get there, but you at least can empathize. And you're like, uh, man, I get it. Yeah. You know, or mothers with extreme postpartum depression. Yes. And that sort of thing. And, and you take those normal feelings, uh, in terms of birth and parenting and especially young, you know, parenting a young child. And in this movie's particular case, you amplify that to a, to a ridiculous degree by losing your partner in the same sort of event life event. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, one thing I did want to, or one last thing in terms of the, the scary stuff that's a little more trivial than some of this more thematic stuff before we dive far more deeply into that pool. Um, man, I hate roaches and goodness (laughs) gracious. I was not ready for this movie to suddenly take a turn for the the roach. Uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, it's funny because uh, watching it with you last night, I think you might recall, um, you know, when she discovered the hole behind the fridge, I was like, no. <laughs> no, not roaches. Come on. And then they just start pouring forth. It's funny, a, a uh, funny media roach story. So, I've referenced before my love of the X-Files, and I remember, so 94 is when it premiered. Okay. And I remember at that time, I would have been <clears throat> you know, 13, 14 or so. And um uh thinking, I would probably like this. This is up my alley. And watching turning it on one Friday night, I think that's when it aired. And there's a specific episode round about gosh, seasons three or four, called War of the Coprophages, <laughs> which is about these science experiments that are roaches that get loose and Whoa. crawl under people's skin.
1: Oh, good lord. Right, exactly. <laughs>
0: oh my God. So, I'm I'm thinking on a Friday night, I might watch some X files, and there's a particular scene in this episode where these teenagers are in this, like, drug lab being stupid teenagers doing stupid teenager stuff, and a roach literally crawls under one of their skin.
1: uh uh-uh. Like, oh this is the
0: scene I tune into. My first experience with X-Files is tuning into this scene, <laughs> oh and I was God. like, nope. And it was, like, sort of like Pet Sematary and Stephen King. It would be another four years yeah. before I dove back into the X-Files pond. So, wow. yes, me and Roach do not. Uh, being 36 and a husband and a father, I've had to learn to up my um, my you know strength of will when it comes to vanquishing them. Yep. Um, yep like the time that I thought one was dead threw it in the trash can was taking the trash bag out to the garbage can uh-uh. and started crawling up my arm. No, it was no. not actually dead. That was horrifying. <laughs> no, no, no. So yes. Oh, the Babaduke is scary, but Roaches <laughs> Those are the worst. <laughs> and you know what's interesting though is thinking about that imagery, you know, this movie plays so much on see, I'm gonna make this really depth segue into thematic stuff. This movie plays on this maternal like my guess is women who are mothers who put themselves through watching Baba Duke would probably find a lot to glom onto mm, in terms yeah. of, wow, I'm surprised and impressed they went to this level. But you think about the standpoint from this sort of maternal thing, this sort of uh, single mom roaches. I mean, like that, nobody likes them, but that is like, that's there's such a sense of invasion of home like that Mm -hmm. creature that critter represents my home is invaded my home is infested yeah um your home is meant to be your sanctity your safe place right and what an interesting image and the babadook creature you know there it is it is i don't think it's unintentional that there are moments where Once that imagery is introduced into the movie, I mean, the scene where it's on the ceiling and leaps into her mouth, there's a very skittery kind of quality to what's happening there. You're absolutely right. And and the car scene we just referenced. Mm -hmm. What happens? One, she discovers one in her lap. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think there's a very intentional connection being made between those images. So, you know, what I meant as sort of a trivial nod really probably has a lot more resonance from a narrative standpoint. Like, your home has been invaded this is a constant reminder of it. Yeah. Um, You know, so that's a really fascinating approach, but uh, you know, I, I derailed you a little bit from some of the theme stuff, but wanted to dive back into that. You know, you mentioned this earlier and, and I think this movie has a particular, again, resonance for mothers specifically, but even just as a parent, those first 40 minutes or so, man, you, 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 you empathize so deeply with her, like this, the degree of isolation she must feel. Right, You know, like, because you don't, as a parent, feel the freedom to convey, man, I am really, again, separate the loss of the spouse. Right. You know, say say he died under just casual, not casual, but, uh, you know, just circumstantial events along the way, not something so impactful as on the way to birth your child, but as in, say he's just out of the picture, say it's a divorcee, um, you know, the sense of isolation that woman must feel who knows my child is hard to deal with. Right. But you still, as a parent, love them. And, and, but you also feel afraid to speak up. Yeah. And acknowledge to, to, uh, appear or in this case, her sister, mm-hmm. you know, like, like you just really, it, it does a really good job. And maybe this is scripting, maybe this is performance, maybe this is direction, maybe it's all of the above, you know, it does a great job in those first 40 minutes of really preying on that parental sort of phenomena that happens of like, I have this person who's constantly with me, but I feel very alone. Yeah, you know? exactly. In um, and, and her case, literally alone because she doesn't have a spouse to, to bear that, that burden with.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the thing about the roach because e- even in five viewings, that's a connection that I hadn't made and I think is so spot on to what the film's trying to deal with. Because I think one of the things, obviously, that the film is dealing with on the nose and I think every viewer of this film will walk away understanding that this film is talking about grief it's talking about not only how we deal or not with the tragedies in our life but um, how if we don't deal with them in a healthy way how they can kind of uh, it is an invasive feeling and it is a sort of a you begin to lose control of your sensibilities I feel so much for her in the moment in the doctor's office where, and it's not a scary moment, but where she's sitting in the doctor's office and she's, her her face is so taut and, and exhausted and she's crying and there's, you know, still tear stains on her face from where she has been crying. And she said, if we go home, this is going to start all over again. And I'm just not coping. She's asking him for some sedatives mm-hmm. and she's like, I'm just not coping. And my heart goes out to her so much with those words. I'm just not coping. Right. Um, and you think about how many times somebody could be suffering something that you're completely oblivious to, that could be impacting their behavior, could be impacting how they interact with you. How many times have I been at work or just out somewhere and about, and somebody's very aggressive or, or rude to me? My immediate response is of course to get defensive and it rattles me and I'm like, you know, who do you think you are? And 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 immediately sort of respond that way. And I lose sight many, many times of the fact of I don't I don't know what's going on with that person right now. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that person is dealing with. I had um I will I'll I'll spare specifics for some obvious reasons, but there was a coworker I had one time who was very erratic emotionally and was really beginning to to get, um, frustrating for me to, to work with this person. And I didn't find out until later that they were going home every night to a, de- to a domestic violence situation. Wow. And, um, I found it out, uh, somewhat accidentally, um, probably two or three months after I'm going home every night going, thinking this person is just an awful human being, mm-hmm. you know, that they just, that they are just, uh, to a sense, crazy, and sure. and they don't know how to deal with people. But yet, when I found this out, it suddenly flavored everything I had seen, to the degree that I that I suddenly immediately have a lot more compassion, and sure. I immediately have a lot more sympathy. I still don't necessarily think that the behavior was. Uh, just, I'm trying to find the right word. The word I want to use is is acceptable, but that sounds like sure. a bit more well, disciplinary. I mean, you're, you're not wrong.
0: It, it isn't, you know, and to, and to the degree I understand the story you're telling, like, it isn't socially acceptable. Right. But right. oftentimes people who are behaving in a non-socially acceptable way, if we can use that phrase, are, are, it's, it is a cry for help. It is a, mm-hmm. something's going on. I, I love that line too. And it, for some reason, it stuck out to me. I think because usually, whether it's in life or in <clears throat> media, When someone uses the, the statement, I'm not coping something, you expect something to follow it. Like, right. Like most of the time it's, Oh, Hey, really hard things are going on for you. You doing okay? Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing okay. This woman is stating like the wall is too high and too tall Mm. and it is insurmountable. Right. I am not coping. Period. Full stop. Right. Life is not moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if it is moving forward at all, it's further spiraling downhill right. because I just can't climb over this wall. Right. Um, it is interesting. Something that I think fans and viewers of genre material, specific hor- specifically horror material, as as our conversations circle around. But I think I think genre material, and, and you can apply this to sci fi, fantasy, whatever when it's done well and this movie does this well it it affords a unique storytelling opportunity that more straightforward drama or perhaps comedy can't and that's metaphor it is able to embody very difficult subject matter and put it in a fantastical sort of scenario in this case the you know manifestation of this creature that is her interior life you you know, a a less discerning viewer might watch the Baba Duke and be like, Well, I didn't see the, the creature. I wanted more of the creature. It's like, <laughs> right. well, you kind of missed the point then. Yeah. The yeah. point is you know, and, and why I think that movie resonates so well is the richness of what is happening hmm. to the to this person. You know, that that the horror genre, in this case specifically the Babadook Duke, is using horror conventions, right. monsters, shadows, scary things to tell a much better and bigger story. And that's, you got to talk to somebody about what you're going through. I mean, in in a nutshell, that's the Babadook, you know, the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, you, you brushed up against this a minute ago. I've, um, just through, you know, kind of personal experiences over the last few years have, have, uh, come to know, um, perhaps also visit with counselors perhaps, um, and you know, one of the things that became evident early in those experiences was and, and and this was sort of a verbatim quote, that unresolved grief leads to mental illness. Oh wow. You know, yeah. that that the inability and that, that's what you see in this movie. Yeah. Right, you know, it's it's and she's trying to say and and I don't think her character's name is Amelia. I, I don't think Amelia is being willfully untruthful. You know, like, like the sister asks her, you gotta move on. She's like, I have moved on. I think mm. to the extent she understands, perhaps she thinks she has. Right. But as this child has gotten older and, and more strong-willed and is a clanging symbol of a reminder. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. perhaps when he's younger, he's easier to deal with. You can mute, put that, put those sort of feelings on mute right. in a way that you don't have to deal with them. But now that he's becoming more difficult and volatile in a way that honestly, like, yes he's a little outside the bounds of what we would call normal in terms of childhood acting out but he's he's still just a kid and sure and, you know with a vivid imagination but you know i think that she probably believes i'm okay until she's, yeah. until the wheels are coming off you know and yeah. we're in full-blown babadook mode you yeah know? yeah um so it's it's really fascinating to deal with that and i feel like you you know kind of kind of pre uh recording you were talking about this but something I feel like I reference him all the time, and it's because he has such good things to say. The uh, Brian Stevenson in Alabama, who's doing all this work, um, wrote "Just Mercy," but they have begun his institution, the Equal Justice Institute, um, has begun work on this lynching museum. And and where I'm going with this is this notion of grief and unresolved grief. And as you hear him and see him talk about um, racial re- <clears throat> racial reconciliation, which You know, we're recording in mid-September. I'm from Charlotte. You're originally from the area. You know, there is a lot of sad and heavy stuff happening in that region right now, um, as has been happening frequently throughout our country the last year or two. Um, He has this fascinating sort of talking point about Nazi Germany. He said, you Mm. can't go to Germany in the present day and not be reminded at every turn about what went on here. Oh wow. And so the point he's trying to make is that culture, that 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 part of the world mutually recognizes what has gone on and right. the tragedy that befell so many people by visual landmarks, actual historic landmarks throughout their country. Right. You know, this this sort of this grieving process. Mm-hmm. A a group of people uh violently and maliciously you know, did the absolute worst you can to another group of people. And we've acknowledged that. And so what he's sort of saying and, and what this lynching museum is meant to do and recognize is that we don't do that here in the United States, that this right. history of, of racial oppression has never been um, fully addressed. It's just taken on new forms. And I, I know that's a, a stretch, but again, it's that notion of unresolved grief right. and, and unresolved grief on a mass scale oh, God. leads to what? Riots, protests, yeah. violence—not because these are terrible people, but because unresolved grief is leading to. I mean, you could you almost couldn't draw a more a more clear parallel the, in, than the Babadook. It's yeah. monstrous things take hold and take action yeah. when we are overlooked
1: and unseen and don't get our voice heard. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's you're so right, and I, you know, uh, it's something that we sort of brush up against so many times on this show specifically of, you know, we'll, we'll sort of in a more broad way reference current political trends or social trends. But I think if there's ever a film that has something to say about some of what we're experiencing socially right now, um, we joked earlier about, you know, made a sort of passing joke about the election, but I was talking with someone uh, actually just last night um I was talking to somebody about the idea of that we as a nation and as a people have lost something at the very least vital and perhaps precious and that is our capacity to properly grieve mm-hmm. and it's it, what what you're saying resonates so much with me that we have responded to things over which we would if we were in biblical times, like, I, the, the, the image that has, that has, um, assaulted me so many times through the course of, like, what's happening in Charlotte, you know, as of September and what we've seen happen throughout our country and other parts of the country because of, of violence or because of racial tensions or because of political or social tensions. Um, the image that has continued to come into my mind is the biblical image of sitting in the ashes of mm. putting sackcloth on and you, you stop. You stop what you're doing, and you give the grief the time it needs to work itself out. And what happens, I think, as an individual, and we're seeing happen as a collection of individuals, is that if you don't take the time to proverbially sit in the ashes, then that grief will manifest itself in these other ways, in these... Assaultive and these blaming and these accusatory and these violent ways. Look at what happens in the film that the she goes in varying degrees to from self pity, self sympathy to then she starts, you know, getting pretty verbally violent to him Mm -hmm. and assaultive to him. But then even in a quieter moment, there's a moment after the neighbor, Miss Roach comes to the door. We talked about this a little bit off mic, but. Then she goes to him later, and she's very calm, and she's very peaceful. But what she's saying to him is, I want you to meet your father. And you know in that moment, like, she's saying she's going to kill him. Mm -hmm. She's saying she's about to kill him, and he recognizes it and, of course, defends himself, and that leads to a few other things. But the thing that I thought was so telling about this film is that we must never lose sight, even in the fact that when she's in the full throes of the Babadook, She, as a person, loves this boy. Sure. She loves this boy. But the boy in the basement, and I got emotional watching it. I've gotten emotional every time I've seen it. I'm getting emotional a little bit right now thinking about it. The boy eventually reaches a point to where he basically catches her off guard and manages to knock her out and then tie her up in the basement while she's in the throes of this Babadook thing. And he says to her, while she's screaming at him and thrashing against her tethers, he says to her, I know you don't love me. The Babadook won't let you. And that line stands out so much to me in this movie. He says, the Babadook won't let you. And it's basically, if we dive right into this theme, your grief won't let you respond to me the way you really would respond to me if you were not dealing with your grief. Right, Right. Your grief Will not allow you to see me as your son. It will not allow me, allow you to see me as somebody you love. And then he responds when he says, you don't love me. The Babadook won't let you, but he says, but I love you, mom, you know, and, and he, he basically says, and I'm not leaving. And it is that courage on his part to confront what he knows is not his mother. Mm -hmm. Because he even says to her up in the bedroom, he says, you're not my mother. And she screams back at him, I am your mother. Mm-hmm. And that's the lie. Right. The lie right. that it wants to make you believe is this grief, this rage, this fury, this homicidal impulse towards you is the reality. Sure. But it's not the right, reality. Right, right. It's not the truth. And what I love so much is, at, and he says to her down in the basement, he says, the Babadook is in you and you've got to get it out. Right. You have to get it and out. She vomits. And she vomits so up that black goo. But then, then the film does something that I find even more brave because after she gets it out, that's, that's a we're getting close to credits moment. She vomits it out. They have a reconnection. But then when they get up from the basement, she's calmer. She's notably more herself. But he looks at her and says, you can't get rid of the Babadook. And then this invisible thing begins to assault him Right, right. A- apart from her. Right. And this is the moment that when I saw this the very first time, this is the moment for me when I knew this is going to be a favorite film of mine. Hmm. Is when he's being assaulted and then she, good lord, I wish I could quote it verbatim, but there's some language in it. When she basically confronts this thing, right, right. you are, n- this is my house and you are trespassing right. in my house, And then she says, "If you lay one more hand on my son, I will kill you." Sure. You know And here's the thing: I've, I, I think I said this before in prior conversations about this. I wish so bad, Nathan, I wish so bad that for myself, in my own heart and mind, but collectively, for my friends and family who I love, I wish so bad that we could take. These feelings, these things, this the, the, this grief, this anger, this outrage, this hatred—that we could put it in front of us. Sure, you yeah. are trespassing yeah, yeah. in my life, mm-hmm. and if you dare to come at me again, like this, will not be allowed. Sure. You you don't have you don't control me. You don't manage me, and I want so badly to have the courage as an individual. When I'm dealing with these feelings to confront that right. and to say like, no, I am not going to listen to you, to give in to you. I'm not going to let you control my behavior to the people that I love and to the pe- to, to the way that I live my life, to the way right. that I just move through my existence. And what I so appreciate about this film is that it does not end with the, the, the Babadook creature wandering off into some woods or sure. dissipating or anything. It goes down to their basement. And when the film is over, it is still down there in the basement. And she goes down periodically in a calculated way to basically manage this thing, right. to basically right. deal with... With this thing, she said to the doctor, "I'm not coping." What we see Mm -hmm. in that final scene is her coping. There's this nasty, violent, wicked part in her home, but it is not in control anymore. Sure, and well, and and, you know,
0: as we as we start to steer the plane towards the runway, um, you know, you and I have had conversations these last few years, uh, and I've encouraged you just through my own sort of therapeutic journey um, and what you just described. I do think I want to acknowledge what you just described as well as do something a little different for us too. But, you know, like you said, you wish we could do this. I think that something we, we experience far too little of, but I want to encourage you, myself, our listeners to pursue is exactly what you just described as wishful thinking. And that's to name your feelings, to be able to to in, in my sort of therapeutic journey as it were there is there has been significance in understanding that there is not a moral judgment attached to a feeling mm. you know it's it's kind of like the people who talk about jesus saying well he says if you if you think murderous thoughts in your head you've said well no I, I don't think that's what he's saying right. i think he's saying be mindful and cautious because what right. you'll permit and allow to fester in your mind to the Baba Duke is, is, the movie is a template for this. You know, sh- her inability to name her grief, mm-hmm. to, to point a finger at and name her anger and, and not to dispel with them. Right. But to be able to recognize them as a thing unto themselves that I'm going to experience. This, this character will probably experience this stuff for the rest of her life. Right. That's, it's, it's not, it's not whole or healthy. Um, to, to be able to divorce yourself from your capacity to feel these things. Right. You know, it's what makes you a, a, a good human, mm. you know, is the ab- ability to engage. Okay. You know, it's, it, <clears throat> you are experiencing grief. So I, I, because of my own experiences with grief, I can enter in and participate and, and help you through that or vice versa when I need it for you and vice and, you know, on down the line for all these different feelings. It's not the ability to not feel these things. It's the ability to not. Uh, let these feelings become the dominant mental and emotional template. You right. know? And so, you know, you're, you expressed a minute ago, I wish we could do this. I think <clears throat> the more a person can can begin the practice of doing that. Right. You know, and, and where I wanted to go, and this is unique for us, is to just encourage listeners, like, I feel like in the church, to to a blisteringly unfortunate degree, there is such a shame attached to, which is its own emotion and, and uh, destructive emotion, um, such a shame attached to professional counseling and therapy. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and, and what a terrible thing. If you've ever had a person in the church sort of make you feel shame for feelings that you are just experiencing and trying to express in what you perceive as a healthy manner, shame on them for, for imposing that feeling upon you and I want to, and I believe Reed would echo, want, we want to encourage you. There is no shame to whole, to a pursuit of wholeness. Amen. And I think if Jesus wants to do anything in having come down, died and resurrected, it might be a, this might be heretical. I think, I think the saving of your soul is an important thing. I think the wholeness of your current person is almost as important, mm. because you are no good to anyone not whole. And I think part of Jesus' mission was to help us experience wholeness in life, to abundant life, you know, to use actual scriptural language. And I think the person who feels shame, the person who feels beset and 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 condemned by just normal human feelings, because the church has sort of in, uh, implied explicitly or implicitly that you're not allowed to feel those things. You are not experiencing wholeness and this isn't some Pentecostal admonition. It's simply stating there is rest for you and there is a place, you know, find it, look something up on the internet, find someone locally that you can talk to that you trust. You need that in your life. Um, I didn't mean to get all preachy, but it it, it just, just, uh, as someone who has experienced the, uh, firsthand experience, the value, of a therapeutic setting, I would, I would encourage anyone at any juncture of life who is experiencing heavy things to pursue that and to feel no shame whatsoever in that. Um, so yeah, name your feelings. I, I think, uh, I think the Babadook had far more to hold than I anticipated <laughs> um, in terms of, in terms of, um, oh, and that that's the heavy stuff. I want you to feel free to respond to that if you want to read, but also uh, as sort of an end note on my, of well, let me pause yeah, there because yeah. I
1: do have one response. Yeah. I just want to say to, you know, uh, to everything that you just said. First thing I want to say is just amen. The second thing that I want to say is, is I, I think it's important what you've identified as, uh, uh, fellow Christians making you feel shame for these feelings. I agree with you. Uh, sh- shame on them for making you feel that way. I also want to encourage you uh, perhaps to get even more preachy than you just got that Jesus himself understands that feeling. The passage of scripture that I had written down to possibly reference for this was Isaiah 53, 3, which is prophetically talking about Jesus. And it says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So if you yourself are experiencing pain, grief, sorrow, lament, there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. We have severely lost something within the church community Mm -hmm. about how to Make people understand that it is okay that you feel things that are that are assaultive to you and that you feel this pain and you need to have a safe place to be able to get those out. As of right now, for many people, that would be a, a counseling scenario. If you sure. are a part of a church where you feel like your church body um, gives you that, then I am very thankful that you have that. If you do not have that, find a safe place that you can... Get that out because I think that is a holy mandate right. to to express those things. And that was really the only response that I.
0: Well, and uh, the, this segues out of some of that in an interesting way. It's a technical question for you. So, so you said something earlier about the movie that made me wonder: Would you disagree with this? But I don't know. So, to me, in the movie The Babadook, the creature that is the Babadook does not exist without Amelia. And I wonder if you agree or disagree with that. Like, Mm -hmm. I, especially as we're talking and realizing just the richness of what this movie is after in terms of a discussion and conversation on healthy living and, and naming our feelings and, and owning our grief so that it doesn't own us. I think it's almost, it would almost, to me, it would almost be disappointing and counter to some of that richness. If the Babadook were just this thing that roamed home to home and occasionally found the person it wanted to attack and attach itself to, you know, so so I'm I'm basically propping you up to say, hey, agree with me. I don't mean to do that, (laughs) but but it is an interesting thought. Like I I I went into the movie, I'll put it that way. I went into the movie thinking, oh, this is a creature that's apart from them, that's not going to solve them. And now, having watched it and having talked about it so thoroughly, I think no, this movie is a slice of these people's lives. Um, this creature only to me exists in relation to these two people. Mm-hmm. Now you may have your Babadook, that is your Light. version of grief, right. but in terms of an independent agent, you know it's not Michael Myers roaming the streets, right? You know, looking Light. for whom to to attack.
1: Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I don't think that it exists without Amelia. I don't think it exists honestly without uh, Amelia and Samuel. Sure, uh, sure. I think it is very deliberate and specific to this family unit. Um, and, uh, and I think that you said it on, you hit the nail on the head that other people may have their own version of this thing, which is why I think the metaphor works so well, but it is not this separate compartmental thing. Um, they have simply compartmentalized it within their hearts by the end sure, that sure. it did it, that it sort of was birthed from within them. Mm-hmm. And then now they have, you know, they've just taken it and put it in the place right. where it will possibly live forever. She says to Samuel, cause he said he wants to go down and see it. And she says, someday, mm. someday you will, mm. you know? And I thought that was even, even just a small little touch like that talking about like, okay, you're, you're seven. Right, right. You right. know, like there there's some of these things that you will deal with. And and just when it tries to bend her over and she's like, Shh, it's okay. It's okay. You know, just that self-management mm-hmm. of this thing. Mm-hmm. She's she's compartmentalized this in a healthy way because they've, as you said, they've named it and they've confronted it and they're not in denial about it anymore. Right, right. I don't know if we've referenced it specifically in this in this conversation yet or not, but the next door neighbor who has Parkinson's and we talked mm-hmm. about it off mic. I know that um, she, there's a moment where the mom comes home and she calls for Samuel and Samuel says, Hey, you know, she has, she has Parkinson's. She has this disease mm-hmm. that makes her shake. And she said, no, don't, don't just say that that's insensitive. But the neighbor says he wanted to talk about it. And so right. we talked about it right. and what a healthy attitude yep. to have about Very your powerful. own frailty, mm-hmm. about your own afflictions. It, he wanted to talk about it, so we talked about it. And Miss Roach is simultaneously the most frail character in the film and the strongest character in the film. Sure. Because she is at peace with what has happened in her body and is able to give freely of affection. And almost every scene she says, I just love you. I, right, just lo- I right, care right. so much for you. And she's able to give so much of that because she's not trapped. Which in is design.
0: sort of an interesting, um, unconventional approach to the horror genre right i mean you're absolutely you're prepared for that character to die
1: absolutely you like said it you, you muttered see, it when we right, were watching I, the movie I I <laughs> said, like, Bye bye, <laughs>
0: see you, neighbor. Yeah. you know like you're sort of primed like innocent bystanders are going to get hit yeah um and yet it, it doesn't and in fact all you know you you just made a good point all she does in every scene she's in is sort of impart this sort of matronly, mm-hmm. you know, she, she's kind of the counterpoint to Amelia, like yes. this, this illustration of not just owning your infirmities, but from a, from a feminine perspective, like you, you're, you're going to make it.
1: Let's, let's yeah. get through
0: this together. And, and I don't know, that's very powerful, uh, powerful note to end on there. Yeah,
1: anyway. I, I agree with you. And I, I think we will end it there. Um, I, this film, uh, I think is a masterpiece. If you have not seen it and still made it through this conversation, hopefully we've, touched on some reasons why you absolutely should see it. It definitely has its creep factor for those of you who are just looking for a scary film, but it has a lot of substantial things to think about. Um, and hopefully our conversation is... Illustrated some of that for you, and we hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Um, you can keep the conversation going because, as we say every episode, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. You can reach out to us in a variety of different ways on social media. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. What's our Twitter handle, Nathan? Um, at the fear of God. You can also reach out to us on, you can like us on Facebook, comment on the Facebook page there. You can email us, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach out to me on Twitter specifically, at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter? Um, at the at Rouse. So we would love very much to hear from you, your thoughts on this episode, your thoughts on that film, anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to share with us. We would love to continue engaging. So thank you so much again to all of our listeners and for how encouraging you've been Um, so just uh just uh, reach out to us by social media and we will talk to you next week nathan thanks so much for having this conversation with me
0: i'm happy to do it right next to you all right
1: see you next week guys
0: The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation, and you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. Start by visiting thefearofgodpodcast.com for links to our social media and episode archive, essays, merchandise, and more. If you love what we do, consider becoming a patron by visiting patreon.com slash thefearofgodpodcast, where you will unlock exclusive bonus episodes, extended standard episodes, online events, and so much more. Special thanks to Jacob Hunt of tracermatula.com for our artwork. Our assortment of talented musicians, Andrew Nelson, the Island Family, and Jackson Harper for our varied show tunes. And to Lee Wright and Reed Lackey for our theme music. Special thank you also to Tyler Smith at MoreThanOneLesson.com. Lastly, be sure to subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you listen to us through Apple Podcasts, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review.